Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right, here we go. 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 15. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, sent them by David, his son, to Saul. I think it is so beautiful in some sense that we keep seeing references to the Spirit of God being removed from Saul but being placed on David. And I want to remind you what that is about because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together. At this time in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people in power to enable them or to anoint them, empower them to do a job. This is before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which didn't happen until basically the Spirit was released after the death and resurrection. And so we have to look at it that way. The power of God departed from him or the anointing for that job as king. And it was placed on who? On David. Every time we read, we keep seeing this and the spirit of the Lord is with him. And so you need to remember that the narrator is writing this and he is really pressing the point that the spirit of God or the empowerment of God is no longer with Saul, but now it is with David and it is evident that it is there. I think it is beautiful how God works all things together because here you have this newly anointed young man and he is going to come into the palace where he is literally going to see and learn all kinds of things, but he's coming in in a very safe way and he is offering a service to Saul. Think about it. God is loving on Saul as well because he is bringing David in who is a very kind-hearted, we know, very emotional, and he is a musician, and his music calms the anxiety in Saul. I want you to remember what we talked about two weeks ago, too, the fact that it said a tormenting spirit sent by God. And remember, we talked about the difference of God's sovereign will and in regard to him being the agent of delivery. Do you remember that? That there is a difference. There is a difference in God allowing something in his sovereign will because honestly, everything that happens has to be allowed. Remember Job? The enemy had to ask God if he could sift Job. When Jesus uh, ran into the man possessed by demons, the demons had to ask him if they could be sent in to the herd. So yes, God is sovereign over all. Nothing happens that he does not know about or allow. But there is a difference in that in him being the agent of delivery. And very often when they looked at the sovereignty of God, they gave him a motive. 
just like we do. And we have to be careful about that. And so God allowed a tormenting spirit to come, but he was not the agent of delivery because we have various verses that tell us some things about God. For example, James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. John 1.5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not the author of confusion, but he is the author of peace. The word tempt and test are the same in the Greek. It's parosmos, and it literally means that you can tempt to sin or you can test proving faith. So when you think of the enemy, when he tempts, what does he want? He wants us to fall into sin. But when God tests, what is he doing? He is providing us an opportunity to show our faith, to increase our faith. Same word, but different scenarios. And so I believe that God allowed, he, when he took his power off of Saul, basically everything that was happening naturally in Saul, the things he, that were naturally happening, his paranoia, his narcissism, his fear, his anxiety, I believe all of those just increased and they spun out of control. Could it have been a demonic spirit? Sure, it could have been. When the spirit of God was removed, a demonic spirit could have come in and take its place. I just think it was probably described like that in the culture, but we saw him already spinning out of control in fear and anxiety and all of those things. And I personally think it just increased. And so here you have this, but in God's love, he brings in David to play. And think about the differences of these two. Saul had this huge stature. Remember, he started off with a servant. He came from a well-to-do family with a father who really valued him and worried about him. On the other hand, you have David, who was the servant and, you know, wasn't even an inkling in his father's eye when Samuel came to anoint. You also have a distinction. Saul could not be left alone with his own thoughts. He was so filled with anxiety, he could not be left alone. He would spin out of control. What about David? He was a loner and he would pin his thoughts. He would sing his thoughts and he had this peace. And isn't it beautiful how God brings the two together, working it out together for good, but also loving Saul in the sense that David came and played for him. Now, when you study this scripture, I'm going to tell you, this is one confusing scripture, right? Mary Landreth, she's been studying and she's sent me all kinds of questions and I'm going to tell you all my questions, but let's read verse 21. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my servant service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. When you study verse uh, chapter 16 and 17, you need to understand there are some serious chronological issues. These two chapters were not written in a chronological way. Now I want you to, and I, let me give you, a, let me give you an idea. This, this is what I wrote in my journal. So when I just read it before I even start teaching or reading any kind of commentary or doing anything like that, I read the Bible 
And I literally have just like a little journal to the side and I start writing down all the things that bug me, that question me, that I want to know, anything that interests me. That's kind of how I get started. I don't know how you get started, but that's me, okay? Here are some of the questions that I wrote down or my thoughts when I read chapter 16 and 17, all right? I put number one, did Jesse know that Samuel anointed David as the future king? Did he really know what was going on? It seems with all the brother, brothers passing by that Jesse would have known what was going on. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So chosen them for what? It has to be a big job. It has to be for the king. And so if Jesse knows that, I wrote in my journal, wouldn't he be a little freaked out that his son was just called to come to see the king? Do you ever think about that? And if he was a little bit freaked out, all right, he was probably thinking, has Saul found out? Because if all the brothers were there and the elders of that town were there, how good were they at keeping this massive secret that the prophet showed up and there was some kind of anointing going on and had any of it trickled back? And so now is Jesse a little concerned? And is that why he put all kinds of gifts on this donkey when his son goes to see Saul? I don't know. It's just how my brain thinks. And then I wrote, what in the world is going on with the description of David in chapter 16, verses 18? The guy describes him like this. He is a mighty man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. In chapter 16, has he done anything as far as we know to get that description said about him? So far, we just know he's the punk kid at the bottom of the rung who ends up being a shepherd and has been secretly anointed king. So why does this man name him and say he's courageous and he's a warrior and he's all of these things? I don't know. Inquiring minds want to know. So what was it like for David to be Saul's armor bearer? And when did that happen in the chronological order of this situation? And did he actually go to battle with Saul? Did he really carry his armor? Or did he just play? Or did he do both? And is that why Saul wanted David next to him? Because he was a mighty warrior. He did kill the lion and the bear. He was that kind of man. He could hold all of that. And then at night when Saul was sitting alone and he started to what? Spin out. He could throw down the armor and pick up the what? Yeah, the liar. And so with all of that said, then you start to think, huh? Well, if Saul knew about the anointing, what was he thinking when David was in his presence? And was he thinking, hey, you keep your enemies close? Well, then you start to think, well, if he knew, do you see how crazy my brain is? Well, if he knew about this secret anointing, is this why? He put his armor on him because anybody with two eyeballs would know that his armor was not going to fit David. I mean, if Saul is the giant of the Jewish people, then why would he put that armor on this guy? And was that like David and Uriah, like setting him up to fail, taking him out before he ever got started? But then it says he loved him. It says when he came into his service, he loved him so much. He made him his right-hand guy. 
So maybe the thought was he wanted to protect David at all costs because David is the only one who could what? Calm him down. Oh my word, don't you hate all of these questions? I don't because you know why? This is the fun of the Bible. And as you're driving in your car and you're thinking about all these things and you're talking to God and you're thinking through, guess what that's called? Meditating on the scriptures. And I'm going to tell you, it's way more fun than the other junk we could be meditating on. And so I like having these questions because it is like putting puzzle pieces together. Now I'm going to tell you in my mind, Mary Landreth, how I think it happened, but you can just write it in absolute pencil because to be honest, I have read over the last three years so many commentaries on the chronological order of this. I don't think anybody knows. And I'm talking about very smart people and they disagree. So let me just tell you in my mind how it plays out. Okay. I think he was secretly anointed. I think over time things had to have gotten out, but I think that when someone, when the King is flipping out and they think, aha, we need someone to calm him down. I think whoever that guy was had at some point met David and David is a warrior in the sense that he could kill the lion and the bear. And you know, people knew about that and you know, he kept heads and skins I mean, come on. I have friends who are hunters. They mount their stuff. So I think they knew he was quite the warrior um, and that he played the harp. And so whoever that was that recommended him, and we're not given a name, said, hey, I know someone who will solve your problem. I don't think at that point Saul gave one rip of attention to where David came from or who his father was. All he heard was what? You know someone that can calm me down. And so they went and got him. Later on in the scripture, we're going to see in chapter 17 that it says to us that along the time David went back and forth between Saul and his and the pasture, his father's pasture. So I think there was a period of time when he started to play. I do think they knew each other well. I think they talked because he loved David. And I think he wanted David close to him. And I think David did go into battle with Saul and was his right-hand man and played. But at the point of David and Goliath, it was one of those times when he had gone back to check on his father's sheep and they went to war. The older brothers went to war. And I personally think David heard about the war and went that and was headed that way. And the father said, on your way, take this stuff and please send me word how your brothers are doing. He gets there and then we're going to talk about this because there's going to be a time after David and Goliath where Saul acts like he doesn't know David. And if you read that, that verse is going to make you crazy. You're going to go, how in the world has he been playing for him, says he loves him, made him an armor bearer. And now when he kills Goliath, he asks Abner, who is this kid and who does he belong to? Like that doesn't make any sense, right? What I think happened is back in the day that he was recommended and said he is the son of Jesse of Bethlehemite. I don't think Saul paid attention to that. I don't think Saul cared about his heritage or his family line until he now has become a well-known warrior who has killed Goliath and now he is going to receive all that Saul has promised, which is money, his daughter, and free taxes. At that point, you better find out 
Who is this son? What is his heritage? Where has he come from? Because to be honest, his life and his family's life is about to change. That is the only way that I can put it together. The bottom line is this. It does not matter. Have you ever told a story and had a point that you were trying to make in the story? The narrator is making the point that Saul, the Spirit of God, was no longer with him and the Spirit of God was on David. He is setting the story up for the coming of David. Have you ever told a story with a point and then later on go, well, but yeah, but I didn't tell you this part yet. And then in the next time you tell it, you go, yeah, 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 but I got to back up. I got to give you some history here because when I told it to you the first time, I wanted you to see this, but you really need to know this. That's what's happening here. And so we don't have to have the chronological layout to get the point of what the narrator is trying to tell us in the story. The reason it's so hard for us is that 1 Samuel up to this point is very chronological. And so when we get here, it bugs us. All right, that's the best thing I can tell you, Mary. That's the best way I can understand it. Chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sukkot, which belonged to Judah, and encamped between Zuko and Ezekah. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in lines of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other, with the valley in between them. When you picture this, I have stood there. So when you picture this, don't picture ginormous mountains. I mean, they're... They're pretty big, but they're not like some of the mountains we're used to. And so they almost look like oversized hills in some places. And so you have one across, one over here, and you have, so you have, it's, it's going up on both sides. And in the middle, you have about a mile stretch of this flat valley, which in between you have like a small little creek or river running through that, okay? And so they would have been encamped up the side of this mountain while the Philistines were encamped over there. It's a very small territory and you could have seen your enemy camp from your camp. And to be honest, if you spent any time in Israel, sound travels like you cannot believe. And so they would have been able to hear loudly as they came closer, um, the shouting from the other side. Okay, so just know that. It says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. I'm going to summarize this for you. He is approximately between nine to 10 feet tall. Some people have him at nine feet. Some people have him at 10, some at nine, nine. Okay, so between nine and 10 feet tall. That's from head to toe. So you can imagine his span when his hands are up, all right? So he is a very large man, and he is basically carrying about the weight in his weapons and armor of almost 200 pounds on him. Not to mention, he is not alone. He has an armor bearer that is walking in front of him that is carrying a shield as big as his body. 
So I want you to think about this. This is one massive giant supporting 200 pounds with armor and weaponry, and he, his body is completely blocked by another huge person who would be able to hold a shield the size of this man's body. And he is called a champion. And in that word, in the Hebrew, it literally means middleman or a man between two. And basically what he is doing is he is coming out and this is what he's saying. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So the middleman literally means he walked down between and he is saying, mano y mano. Why in the world would we go to battle and lose all of this manpower fighting when we could handle it between two people, lose one life and use the other life for the economy? Why would we do that? Why would we waste all of this manpower fighting when we can determine it mano y mano, champion to champion, and then whoever wins, the other will serve. And he comes out and he is saying that. And it says that when they heard these words, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. In other words, they were so filled with anxiety, they were freaking out. And can I tell you, that is exactly his intention. That's exactly what he wanted. Can you imagine the sight? He came out fully dressed in pads and started talking smack. All right? That's what he did. He came out to intimidate. He is a what? A bully. He is a giant. And this is what happens. Bullies, they live off of fear. He came out and he wanted to instill so much fear in them that one of two things would happen. Number one, when a bully puts fear in you, he's hoping what? You're so afraid that you never fight. He's already won. He's already won because you're scared to death and you're going to retreat. That's what they do. They live on intimidation, right? Number two, if you finally decide to fight, you're going to be fighting with such apprehension and fear that you're already at a disadvantage. Have you ever played sports? Haven't you ever seen football? It's called smack talking, right? You're going to talk smack. You're going to try to get in that other person's head because if you can get in their head, that's half the battle because they're already playing afraid. If Zachary can say, I, you know, talk all kinds of smack, they're going to do everything they can to avoid that hit. And so this is what a bully does. Plenty of us face giants. Plenty of us face similar situations. Although we're not facing literal giants, we're facing some sort of challenge that strikes fear in our hearts. Maybe some person, some pressure, some worry, some fear. I want you to stop for just a minute. I want you to think about your self-talk. I, I want you to think about your worries. 
the things that weigh on you, the things that you're afraid of. It's what your mind goes to often. I want you to think for a minute. What might your giants be? Could be a person, some kind of pressure, some worry you're under. Could be an addiction. Could be an addiction to a substance. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna for one minute think because we're Christian women at a Bible study that we can't be addicted to some substance. You can also be addicted to a person. Sometimes I think people are addicted to drama. They literally couldn't live without it. That they manufacture it. What about self-worth? Do you fight that battle? Every day, do you have thoughts about yourself and self-worth? How you feel when you look in the mirror? You, or you hate to shop or you don't want your picture taken? Or how you feel you won't go with a certain group of people? You won't enjoy their company because you always feel bad because you're bigger or smaller or whatever than the rest of them? Do you have an anger issue? You just can't deal, you just can't stop the anger? Maybe you have rejection Injuries, wounds, rejection wounds. You're in a bad marriage. You've had the death of someone. You have a hurting child, young or old. Financial struggles. You're still dealing with consequences and shame of bad choices. You can't forgive yourself. Some kind of giant stands before you, taunting you, harassing you, and insulting you. The very first thing you have to do to kill that giant is first what? Identify it. What is the name of that giant? What is it that is constantly worrying you and harassing you? It's interesting because it says Saul and the people were afraid. It names him specifically, which I find really interesting. Because not only is he the king, but he is also what? the best choice they have to fight this giant. Because if there is anyone whose stature could even get close to this giant, who would it be? Saul. He is the giant of the Israelites. And so he is literally head and shoulders above the rest of his men. The old Jewish traditions say that we're only getting half of this story, that Goliath came out and he was talking some serious smack. Do you really think that's all he ever said every day it was scripted? Think of your men. Do they just come out and script when they're getting sassy and prideful and they're in sports? And are, are my men the only men that have ever acted like an idiot playing sports? Right? You see that testosterone coming out. You see that competition. You see that pride happening. And it can come out in some serious smack talk. Jewish tradition says that he said this. Oh, you men of Israel, what noble exploit has Saul done that you have made him king? If he's such a hero, let him come down himself and fight. But if he is weak or a coward, then choose some other man to come fight me. You know he was ripping Saul. Are you kidding? This is the king you wanted? You chose this king because he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else? Oh, he's real big. Send him down to me. I'll show you how big he is. I mean, you can imagine what is going on. Do you remember what Saul used to be like? Do you remember what he was like when he faced the Ammonites? He was so full of zeal. 
and passion. Remember what that means to boil over? That he cut the cattle in pieces and sent it all over Israel and said, you better show up. We're going to go face the Ammonites. And now what is he? He is shaken in his shoes. You want to know why? Because he has felt the power of God has come off of him. And that zeal, that fervor is no longer there. And he is standing there filled with anxiety. But what I want you to understand is we don't have that problem. In our case, the spirit never leaves us. We are filled with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It never leaves us. So what has us trembling? What has you trembling in fear? What battle are you avoiding or ignoring because you're afraid? And I'm going to tell you another thing. Little 411. Bullies, they can only bully with a little bit of an element of truth. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a little girl who's getting bullied. Okay? You're fat. They're, they're calling out all kinds of things about her. You're fat. Oh, watch out. She just sat on the bench. Oh, my gosh. We all fell off. These are little boys talking, right? And she feels terrible about, terrible about herself. But why? Why does it hurt so bad? Because the element of truth is she's chunky. And she knows it. And so she already feels bad about herself. And so they're just confirming and highlighting what? A lot of what she's feeling about herself, right? The problem is there is an element of truth in your battles. And so the question is, when are you finally going to look in the mirror and tell yourself the truth? The accountability mirror. And look and see what the situation truly is. Like if we went back over these different things, when are you going to look in the mirror and claim, yes, this is the case. I do have an addiction. Or yes, this is the case. I am in a bad marriage. What am I going to do about it? Yes, my spending habits and my lack of whatever have gotten me in this position. And my giant is the fact that I am scared to death about the future and my security. Okay, so here's the deal. I got myself here. What am I going to do from this point? And the bottom line is the spirit of the living God is in me. He is going to empower me if I am obedient. He is never going to leave me nor forsake me. He is going to take care of me, but I've got to stop this now and I need to start doing something different. When are you going to look and say, you know what? I am heavy and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of me. My thoughts of me are hurting me. This is a problem. So this is something I face. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. But if it's keeping you from going somewhere or you don't feel good about yourself or it's constantly harassing you, then when are you going to look in the mirror and say, this is the deal. I may never be this, but I am going to start doing some things. Me and the Lord, we're going to face these together and I'm going to get active and I'm going to do different things and I'm going to read about who I am and I'm going to attack this giant. Because I am so sick of this giant walking out and harassing me. Because I'm telling you, the reason that, for example, 
If you're, if your giant is facing right now that you're dealing with brokenness in a family or grown kids that are a hot mess. Well, listen, it's painful, but you got to look in the mirror and say, what part of this do I need to own? What part of this did I do? What part of this did, what do I need to do about it now? And what's behind me? What do I do today? But I'm going to get in there and I'm going to face this giant. I am tired of being anxious and scared and frozen because the majority of the times that is what bullies do. And this is exactly what he did. And for 40 days, we're going to see that because it literally says, well, we'll get to it. I'm not there yet. Okay. It says, verse 12, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judea, Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons were Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, and David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. I want you to hear something. Morning and evening. Those are the toughest times of the day when you're facing stuff. Because the majority of the time when you open your eyes in the morning, if you're dealing with stuff, it hits you right in the face the minute you open your eyes. Sometimes you don't even want to get out of the bed or you want to pull the covers over your head. But on in mornings, sometimes you're like, oh, I got to face another day. And you want to know another sensitive time? When you go to bed. Because it's almost like in the morning you open your eyes and everything you're facing hits you. And at night you lay in the bed and what happens? Your mind can sit and worry and go through all of the different things and it creates these ruts in your thinking. I find it very interesting that he came out first thing in the morning to accuse and he came out last thing at night. And it also says that he came out for how long? How long does it say? 40 days. Okay, when you, there are um, certain things you look for in scripture, right? Right? What does 40 days remind you of? Give me an example of one. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights when he was tempted. What else? Mo what'd you say? Yes, wondering. What else? The flood. Okay, so if you see all of those things, right, then 40 days basically symbolizes what? Temptation, okay, judgment, those kinds of things. So right here for 40 days, their faith is being tempted by what? This giant. He comes out day and night for 40 days, day after day, nothing changes. And we're going to look at what they did. But basically every day they would get up, they would come down the side of their hill, they would line up for battle all dressed for battle, all ready for battle. And then this champion would come out and run his mouth and threaten, and they would get scared, turn around, and go back to their tent. And that's what they did every day for 40 days. What does that mean? Every day for 40 days, they had no victory. And listen, 
They also never had a defeat. All they had was fear of a defeat. Let that sink in. That means for 40 days they were stuck. They were just stuck. They were just in this routine that they did. It's almost like a war's not even happening. Do you know? Do you see that? I wonder if they just got used to it. Every day they'd get up, they'd prepare for war. Every day they'd, they'd approach it. He would come out and do his thing and they neither had victory nor defeat. All they had was anxiety and fear. That's it. Because nothing was getting done. I just wonder. How often are we just going through the motions? We're just stuck. We don't have victory over our giant. And to be honest, our worst nightmare doesn't come true either. We're not completely defeated. We're just so frozen scared that we're going to be that we don't do anything. I can tell you that's exact. I lived it. You come down and you think, well, I, I, I'm doing the best I can, Lord. You use me. What can we do? And you get to the edge and you're so afraid that it's all going to fall apart. You don't get victory because you're not doing anything to get victory and you don't get defeat. You're just living fear that it's going to happen. That's what you do. And I am telling you, I know so many people, I'll give this example. I know so many people that are in really bad marriages unhappy, miserable. And I'm going to tell you right now, I am for marriage. I am so for marriage and I want everybody to fight for their marriage. And marriage is a lifelong covenant, no doubt about it. But here's the thing. I think so often we worship the idea of a covenant and yet we do nothing to make the covenant glorify God. And every day we're in this rhythm because we are so afraid to pull the veneer off enough to fight for it that somebody might think we're in a battle and we all have to keep it together. And so we end up in this routine where we just keep the status quo and we hold everything together and we never have a victory, but we also don't have a defeat, but we live in fear forever. And I'm going to tell you, you will not stay in that place. I'm going to show you what happens to Goliath. And I'm going to tell you another thing. You could, you could put this on any one of your giants. Debt will kill you. Debt will absolutely kill you. Finances will kill you. You come out and you look at it and you think, oh my gosh, I'm so far down. What am I going to do? I, I don't know. I'm just going to be spinning a sign on the street. I, I don't know what's going to happen. And you're so afraid that you're going to lose it all that you don't do anything to have the victory and you just get stuck and you just stay in this routine. And, and for some reason, you just think if you come down to battle and then you retreat and you come up to battle and look at it, but you don't do anything, that along the way, something's going to change. And it's not. You're going to be stuck. And so whatever it is, apply it to that battle because I think the majority of the people, we get in a routine and we just live and we don't even realize the victories that could be out there. Because I'm telling you, I should have done something a long time ago. I should have taken a risk and blown some stuff up and fixed it instead of living in fear of status quo, keeping it together because I was so afraid that what happened would happen if I'm being very transparent. And so I'm saying you've got to get into the battle, battle it and get the victory. Why? Why? Because we have the power of the living God. Do all you can. 
And by the way, Jesus knew it because he said, for the joy set before him, what? He endured the cross. He saw the victory and he was willing to walk through whatever he had to, to get to that victory. Status quo was not going to happen there. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an epa of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers and take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token for them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Ella fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse has commanded him. And he came to the encampment of the ho- as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle. Army against army. Don't you love that he put his sheep with a keeper? He is such a shepherd's heart. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brother. And he talked with them. Behold, the champ, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Can't you picture this? David is just cannot wait to get there. He gets there and he realizes they've already got all their stuff together and they have gone down to fight. And he takes that cheese and everything else and throws it to the guy at the baggage. And he can't wait. He is running down there to catch the other men, to be with the other men in this battle. It says all the men, when they saw Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. So he comes down and for the first time he hears it. And all of a sudden that line that he's going to join starts turning around and running back. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Underline come up right there. Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God or the Lord of hosts? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. One thing I want you to look, look at verse 8 and compare it with verse 25. And you tell me the difference of the position of Goliath. So in verse 25, he's telling them to send someone, what? Down to him. But yet when they refer to him, did I say 25? Verse 8. In verse 25, when they refer to him, They're acting like he's doing what? He's coming up. All right? So listen carefully. If you tolerate your Goliath, he is going to take over your territory. If you think for one minute you can just go out, not get victory, not get defeat, just be scared and retreat, that you're actually not going to eventually lose ground, you're mistaken. Because we know in everything, if you're not growing, you're what? You're dying. If you're not progressing, you are digressing. That's what you're doing. That's what's happening. And I can tell you that in my situation to live in status quo 
thinking you're doing it for certain reasons and trying to do your best or whatever, there were things I thought I was holding territory down, but I'm going to tell you what, I wasn't holding territory down because I was losing territory. I was losing parts of me. I was losing all kinds of stuff. The very things I thought I was saving my kids from, I was losing that too. And so we convince ourselves that if we're coming out to battle, that it's too scary to fight the battle. It's too hard. We can't win this battle. And we every day we get in this status quo like, oh, well, we're just going to hold the ground we have. You're not. You're not going to hold it. You're going to slide. Because I am telling you, you have to be fighting and progressing. And the Spirit of God will do that inside of you. It, it's scary. He said, the man who kills him, the king will enrich. The situation had become so desperate that Saul needed to offer a bribe, a cash award, a princess, and tax exemption to induce someone or anyone to fight. Think about that. First off, Saul wouldn't fight. And because of his lack of leadership, his army won't fight. So now what is he doing? He's trying to create a reason for them to fight. He's trying to give them a why. He's trying to motivate them. You know why? I'm going to tell you right now, if you're going to get in a battle, you better know why. You better know why. Your why has to be the strongest reason. David knew his why. And his why was so strong that he was willing to risk his life to fight it. So I'm going to tell you, like, I'll give you an example. If you're dealing with uh, an older kid and, and there is a battle going on, it's tough. And when you feel like you're getting beat up, it's hard to stay in that battle because it's easier to please or you're hurt and you want someone to love you and you're afraid your kid's going to hate you and you're holding ground and you've changed your dance steps. And so now everybody is falling apart. But here's the thing. If you know your why, you'll stay in it because you will think, you know what? Good luck because my why is I love you. I love you and this is not okay. And it is my job to stand you up as an adult. Whether I should have done it then or now, I'm doing it. And I am changing my dance steps because I love you. And if you hate me, you hate me. But I'm going to do it because I love the heck out of you. So you're willing to fight it and take the punches because you know it is the right thing to do. And you're like, you can dance with me or not dance with me. But here are my steps. And you know what you'll find out along the way most of the time? is they'll really want to dance with you. And they start to change their steps. And because I'm going to tell you, by doing that, if you would have stayed status quo just to go along to get along, what do you think would have happened? You would have not stayed status quo. It would have continued and continued to take ter uh, territory. And so whatever your battle is, first off, you better spend time getting to know yourself. This is called the transformation of the mind by the renewal of the spirit. Transformation by the renewal of the spirit. It takes time. When is the last time you sat with yourself and you thought about your fears, your self-talk, that you really took some time to think, what, what am I afraid of? Why does that make me so mad? 
Is it really making me mad or is it making me afraid? Or am I hurt? Like what is the root of what it is I'm feeling? Because the problem is we just get dressed and go to battle. We don't even know what we're fighting. We don't know any of that. You've got to spend time with yourself to be able to do that and to identify what these giants are. And then you've got to decide, okay, well, if I'm gonna fight it, why? What is my motive? I am for my marriage, I want a great marriage, so what, is, what must I do? And you get counsel. What are the things I can do to fight for this? Because there are gonna be times you feel like you're hurting it more than you're helping it, but you're not. Fight for it. What am I going to do with my kid? What am I going to do with my finances? What does this fight need to look like and how bad do I want it? And then you get on your knees because we have the spirit of the living God in us and we have to stay completely connected. Man, I hope this is making sense. David knew why he was fighting. This is a similar, I'll end here because your eyes are about to cross. Um, This is a similar perspective as do you remember when Joshua was leading the the Israelites into Israel? Okay, do you remember that? Well, Joshua and the 12 spies were sent into Israel, okay? Moses was leading them. Joshua was one of the 12 spies. They go into Israel to check it out. Is this really worth fighting for? Because we've heard it's the land flowing with milk and honey but we kind of just want to go make sure it is. Is it worth fighting for? And if it is worth fighting for, what are we really up against? And so they go in there and they go, yeah, it's worth fighting for. It is the land flowing with milk and honey, but oh my gosh, look what we're up against. And they were so afraid that they literally, it was the fear that made it worse because they literally said the land is filled with giants. Now, do you think that is true? Do you really think the entire land was just filled with giants? No, I think there were giants. And I think there were cities that were fortified by great walls and they got scared as to what they were facing. And when they came back out, this is what they said. There's no way we can win this battle. We cannot. Because there are giants all in this land and those cities are fortified. We're toast. It's worth fighting for, but we cannot do it. It's impossible. Ten of them said that. And Caleb and Joshua said what? Are you kidding me? We have the Lord of hosts on our team. Do you know what that means? We have the God who created everything out of nothing on our team. And he says that this land is ours and they will be given into our hands. And what we need to do is trust him and fight. Just do our part. You just get in there and engage. And the people believed the unfaithful spies. Why? They were so afraid. They had a lack of faith. They didn't trust. And so... They were looking at their problem and they were comparing the problem to them. And so they said they look like a bunch of grasshoppers. I'm sure they did. Have you ever looked at a problem and thought, nothing I can do about it. I can't do anything about this. I look like a grasshopper. But Caleb and Joshua did not have that perspective. 
because they looked at the giants and compared them to the Lord of hosts. And guess which one looked like a grasshopper? The giants. Because when God is in it, all things are possible. Now, listen, let me tell you one of your greatest giants. You can't control other people. Who is the only one you can totally control? Well, good luck, but you know what I mean? You. So what you have to decide is when you look at this giant, this battle, you're not writing a battle plan of what everybody else is going to do or what you're going to make them do. Who are you addressing? You. This is the dance I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is why. And it's because I'm for this. I want what God wants. And I'm going to do the following things as unto the Lord. I'm going to beg that God fills me with his spirit to do it. I cannot control anybody else. But as far as me, I am going to step out in faith and I'm going to fight this battle. And that is really hard because the majority of the time we want to control everybody else and we don't want to control ourselves. And we're going to see that when someone shows up like that, when he shows up to his older brother, we're going to see what people naturally do. We project, we defend, we do all kinds of stuff. So we're going to look at that. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And I thank you, God, that it is alive and it is applicable. And God, I don't know if anything I said tonight makes sense, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill in the blanks. I pray that if anything, that I made them inquisitive about this story, about this narrative. And God, I pray that you would draw them in intimately with you. I pray, God, that tonight on the way home, you would reveal to them some of their giants. Whether it is a person they battle or feel they battle, a worry, a fear, whatever it is, God, make it clear to them on the way home. And then, Lord, I ask that we just seek you and we get to know ourselves better and we get to know our what the root issues are. God, I pray that as we, as we seek you, you empower us to know what you want so that we can align ourselves with what you want, that you'll reveal to us what is right. God, I pray that you will lay out a plan and then empower us to engage in the fight. And God, I pray that even when it gets worse before it could get better, that our why is so big that we remain in the fight because you are faithful. And God, I, pr- I believe that you want to give us life abundant. I believe you desire to give us victories. And some of the victories we don't have is because we are going out to get them. We have settled for getting up, getting ready, going down, making a cry, getting scared and coming back. And so, God, I pray that you would increase my faith. pray that you would increase my trust. I pray that you would give me clarity as to how to handle things and that you would give me a deep, deep love for you and a love for whatever it is that's going to give me my why. And, Lord, I pray that we'll put on the full armor of you and fight those battles. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. 
Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.